called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Karam, and today we're with Martine Kalau, and she is the uh, author of a book uh, called Illegal Among Us. You can tell me, Martine, the it's name of it. called Illegal Among Us. And the subtitle is? It's Stateless Woman's Quest for Citizenship. And we're here to talk about the wonderful, on the eve of the midterm elections, we're here to talk about the wonderful uh, issue of illegal immigration. So since the title of this show is Just Ask the Question, I'll just ask the question as the president would. Why do you illegal aliens want to move into and ruin our country? <laughs> well, first of all, um, you know, aliens, no one can, it, no one's an alien, no one's illegal. That's the first thing, right? And so that's the irony of the title of my book, right? It's partly ironic. And it's just, uh, you know, doing away with the euphemistic term of being undocumented. Secondly, um, as we've talked about, or as we've seen in the news with the caravans, a lot of um, undocumented immigrants are here as a result of instances in which the United States was involved in, you know, policy or, or um, you know, the refugees. War. Yeah, they're, they're refugees, they're asylees, right, I, primarily. But a lot of the reasons why a lot of, you know, people come to the United States is a result of things that the United States was involved in in their countries, and they were displaced. So that's another reason. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about that in the regards to Honduras, Venezuela, right. South America. Guatemala. Uh, <laughs> This is the result of our own foreign policy. That's right. Exactly. Explain exactly. that a little bit. We, we touched upon it, but tell well, me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, when we talk about these countries and these individuals, I mean, I don't know all the details in the history, but I all what I do know is that U.S. foreign policy was in, influenced the displacement Created. of people. People were impacted um, and they've been displaced. Um, they were affected in, in terms of economic um you know, stabilization. And that's why they are looking for relief. And so that's why they're here. And that's not just solely, um, you know, in the Central American and South American countries. I mean, we're talking about countries all over the world, including where I'm from. Um, the United States has been involved in different things in, in you know. We'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> but let me, on what we're just saying, the United States government created a situation that mm -hmm. created the refugees, right. that brought them to our doorstep, and right. we have at our doorstep a Statue of Liberty and the Colossus, the the poem. You know, give us your tired, your poor, yes, your exactly. huddled masses yearning to breathe free. But now we're saying enough's enough. Well, because we're also mislabeling them, right? We're referring to them as, um, well terrorists, as people who are fleeing into our country, um, illegal immigrants when they're actually asylees who are looking to seek refuge in the United States because that's what we're founded on, providing people relief, providing people home, providing people um, a sense of freedom. And, in, so, and, and to be honest, let's and let's be honest, those that we call illegal immigrants, when my grandparents emigrated to the United States from Lebanon, there wasn't a real lengthy process to this right. immigration. People showed up on a boat at Ellis Island. They took their name, 
butchered their names many times. Right, right. And uh, if they didn't have a disease, they filled out a form and, you know, that was their path to citizenship. If you did the same thing today, showing up on the border, going, hey, okay. it, you'd be turned away, That's according right. to Trump. So our rules have changed over the years for immigrants. And then the other part of it that that is of concern is, and you tell me as as a woman of color, because I think it speaks to the issue probably better than anything else. It seems that those that were turning away are those of color, not necessarily good white folk. Sure. Um, absolutely. When you look at some of these relief programs that uh, – immigration relief programs that benefit predominantly people of color from, you know, quote unquote, what Trump said, shithole countries. These are the relief programs are being revoked. One of them being the TPS program, temporary protected status. So these are individuals from countries that have um, experienced natural disasters, like we're talking about Haiti, we're talking about Somalia, um, natural disasters, a war, and you know during the uh, the the Bush administration, you know these. You know, this, these relief programs were introduced saying, hey, come on over um, and you can stay. So these individuals have been here for over 20, 15 to 20 years of their lives. You know, they've established themselves here and now they're being told, you don't belong here. We're going to take away. We're going to revoke these programs. Um, and these individuals, 300,000 people fall within temporary uh, temporary protected status. So that's one program. Um while we also talk about DACA being revoked, the other group within the DACA umbrella are dreamers. They're dreamers who didn't qualify for DACA. I would have been one of them. Um, I did not meet the criteria because of the age range. I didn't meet the criteria to qualify for DACA. So had the happenstance that occurred for me not occurred, I would still be undocumented today. So there are over 2.6 million individuals um, dreamers who don't qualify for DACA, who didn't qualify for, for qualify for DACA, who are who are part of this group, right? Um, and those people, for for want of of better description, they are in essence they have no real they they don't have a country to go back to. They don't have a country to go back to. Many of them don't. They came when they were children. Right. The average age of uh, undocumented immigrants who are dreamers. Um, is six years old when they came to the United States. That's the average age. So I came when I was five. I know individuals, they came when they were four or two. So the average is six years old. So when you come from another country, you enter at six years old and you live here. This is, in fact, your home. You don't know any other home. Yeah, that's, so tell us, and I wanna, now let's, we've, we've talked about the issue overall, but tell me your story, how you came to get to the United States, how you came to be a woman an illegal immigrant without a homeland. Right, absolutely. I came to the U.S. legally on um, a traveler's visa with my mother when I was four years old. And I lived in the United States for my entire life, never left the country. Um, and when I was 15 years old, my mother died. And actually, prior to that, when I was 13, my stepfather died, and he was a U.S.-born citizen. Um, they both passed away. And oftentimes within the context of immigration and illegal immigration, there's always some need to blame the parents. But there's this level of ignorance that, that some of our parents have when they come to the U.S. Um, and it's not just ignorance, it's a need to survive. So my mother came to the U.S. 
and assumed that from I where? was safe from the DR Congo, and I was born in Zambia. So I, in fact, um, well, here's the other part of it. I'm, I'm stateless, so neither the neither did Zambia or the Congo recognize me as a citizen. So I really, in fact, did not have a country to go home to. And both of those countries, for background, are not exactly the safest. Your mother absolutely, brought you over here. Absolutely. Um, Zambia is relatively safe, but DR Congo has, I mean, we're at a, you know, now we're going on 25 years of civil unrest and genocide that's occurring. Rape is one of the common crimes of genocide in DR Congo and Eastern Congo. I mean, these are countries- And human that, trafficking. And human trafficking and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there is no effective government. It's anarchy. Absolutely. Absolutely. There Gangs is no democracy. Rule. Right. Absolutely. Um, so when I came here, when my mother and stepfather died, I in fact fell out of status because my mother, although she was a permanent resident, so she had a green card and my stepfather was a U.S. born U.S. citizen. When they passed away, because no um, efforts were made to establish my status, I in fact fell out of status. So I was 15 years old. I was an orphan. I was stateless. I had no country. And I was in fact act an illegal alien, quote unquote. And that's really why I use that term, because um, for the time that from the time that I was undocumented, I was undocumented for 13 years. I was in deportation for seven years from 2000 to 2007. Um, I the term undocumented didn't really exist. It was it's a euphemistic term that's been introduced. And I'm quite grateful for it, but it didn't really exist during the time that I was going through my journey. And so I'm reclaiming the word illegal. And quite honestly, <laughs> you know, that's the term that people are really thinking. People who are anti-immigrants, that's what they're t thinking in the back of their minds. They're not considering us undocumented. So I acknowledge that and I reclaim it. And that's the term that I use for the title of my book. And so how did you <laughs> you're 15 years old. You're homeless. By the way, you sound like you've got an East Coast accent. I'm going to say D.C. or New York, but uh, you sound. Very That's <laughs> correct. Actually, I, I spent my entire undocumented journey, the majority of it um, in New York State. I went to uh, college in upstate New York, Hamilton College, and then I went to grad school at Syracuse. And then I lived in New York City. So I uh, went through my entire journey there. And I'm a recent, um, you know, I recently relocated to Washington, D.C. about a year ago. And your status is you're legal now. I am a U.S. citizen right now. So I congratulations. Truly, thank you. I talk about, you know, in in my book and just w the work that I do to support and educate others about this. I really focus on, you know, the expertise that um, that that needs to be introduced into this conversation. Certainly you have policyholders, you have, you know, um, the media that's talking about this, but you don't have enough people who survived it. People like myself who who have a 360 perspective. I studied it in school. I survived it. I went through it and I survived it. And I also talk about it and train and, and educate others on it. So we need more of those voices in this conversation. When we talk about voices in the conversation, the lead voice right now is the president of the United States. Unfortunately. Uh, and <laughs> and let's, let's talk about what, not just the president, but let's do talk about the president. But where do politicians get this issue wrong? Now, the president says, like with a caravan, there's roving gangs of uh, violent people coming over. He's saying there are terrorists coming over in these caravans as well. I'm not sure. Yes, Middle that. Eastern terrorists. That's right. Absolutely. My cousins, I guess. Right. <laughs> Where's But um, that aside, the fear that it, it – 
speak to that a little bit. I mean, it, it's frightening to consider that some people believe that the uh, immigrants seeking asylum, the refugees, mm-hmm. are here to bring terror to our doorsteps when actually they're fleeing it. That's right. Um, yeah, there's this sense of heightened fear, invoking fear in people because that's, you know, that's the you know, the ideal way to create response and create hate. Um, I think it's important for the American public to focus on the facts and find, you know, identify the facts and the numbers. Um, When you look at the number of illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants and the 11 million um, undocumented immigrants, the majority of undocumented immigrants are a result of overstaying visas. So most undocumented immigrants come here legally and they overstay their visa for whatever reason or another. Predominantly, that's because their majority of them are, are youth, right? And so their parents overstay their visa and as a result, they overstay their visa. The second group are asylees, right? And then the third group are in individuals who cross the border, right? So that's a Hispanics third group. Hispanics from absolutely, Central and South America. Absolutely. But that's so, so. But they're bringing MS-13 with them. They're bringing drugs. Which is, which is not true. If we look at the stories out there and we look at, we listen and we look at the stories that are being shared about these individuals, they're women and children. Right. Well, I mean, there are how plenty of adult are males. Then there right. are, uh, and I mean to to you know to set set the record straight. But they're not the majority. <clears throat> MS-13 started in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, the drugs are here because we have there's a demand for drugs. That's so right. the cheapest way to get them, we're going to get them. So if it's from a mule or an immigrant, <laughs> that's fine. Sure. If we can grow them and produce them here cheaper, we will because we're Americans and we're good at that mm-hmm. stuff. So that's what, yeah. The, I think the, but when we talk, my point being the question: we're generalizing. Is, yeah, that's when, the problem. Is, what would you ask? What would you tell the president if he was sitting right here? What would you tell him about this issue that you think he doesn't know or that he should concentrate on? I think he should concentrate on um, the individuals that are actually. Um, contributing to the economy um, when they come here. A lot of undocumented immigrants, whether they they cross the border, um, whether they come and they overstay their visa, the contribution to our tax dollars are significant. Um, these individuals are not looking to create issues or problems. They're looking for relief and they're looking to work hard and um, they're looking to have a sense of belonging. That's really it. And so I think that the president should look at the dollars that are that our community contributes to the U.S. economy and look at, consider how much of a loss, a significant loss it would be if he wiped all of us out, which is essentially what he would like, ideally, um, to look at that and look at the numbers of, for as many, you know, people that he's claiming are coming here with MS-13s and all of that, let's also look at how many people we're putting into detention facilities and detention cells into cages. And that's actually more, right? So we're actually, um, we're creating um more of an antagonistic state in this in this this there are those who say that we're actually creating or sowing the seeds for future terrorists because we are caging and isolating and doing bad things to these people and they're not going to have good feelings about the u.s in the future and so when they're young and they're displaced that's where do they recruit terrorists from it's certainly not from people who 
feel happy and content in their life. They're from a, a subclass of people um, a, who do, and I don't mean it, you know, like they're subhuman, but by a, a lower class of individual who have no access to education, food, or hope for a future. Right, but I think it's also dangerous to, you know, again, when we talk about terrorism, they're terrorists in the United States. They're they're American-born terrorists right here, right now. I mean, we, we hear these stories occurring every day, you know, with the synagogue in in in, in Pittsburgh uh, about three weeks ago, the Krogers ago. in Kentucky. Exactly, exactly. So you the know, guy we're who sent all the bombs out. We're taking a, a handful of individuals, and I'm not you know minimizing the challenge and 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 the 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 concern that we have with terrorists, but we're clumping, we're we're using that as a generalization for a huge, a significant group of people, the majority of undocumented immigrants, the majority of people that are coming over and crossing the border are not terrorists. No. That's just... That's a fact. That's just a fact. <laughs> yeah. there's, and there's also, what about the, uh, the issue of not allowing those born in the United States to have citizenship? I saw recent figures that say 7% of the people here who are citizens, 7% of the people born are, are, you know, have their citizenship by the fact that they were born here. And although their parents were illegal or were not. Well, I think for me, one of the things I've predominantly focus on are the court systems, like the immigration court systems. Right now, it's under the Department of Justice, under Sessions. Um, This is something that I know quite well. I spent seven years in the court systems. And what people don't know are that their quotas, there is, you know, their backlog, there are over 700,000 cases that are waiting to be heard. There are 400 judges. Now the judges are getting quotas. So they, their hands are tied. So what we're experiencing as these relief programs are being cut and people are here. If we cut, if we tell, if we decide, if they're, you know, that the president decides that, hey, we're not going to allow um, birthright citizenship, citizenship, we're going to have more undocumented immigrants sitting in the United States, in the court systems. Who's going to be impacted by that? Well, they are obviously, but also the taxpayers are being impacted. Um, The misconception is that while there are some immediate re- removal cases that occur, people who are being deported immediately, there are also a significant number of cases that are staying in court for years and years and years. So who's being impacted? Who's paying for that? It's you and me, right? And I am an example of that. I spent seven years in the court system. So that is my answer, um, not from an emotional standpoint, but more from a factual and economic standpoint. You know, when we do that, this is the impact that we have. It's it's affecting all of us in our in our economy. How dare you use logic? You know <laughs> that it's merely an emotional issue. But to many, it is. Your facts will not sway someone. In fact, I have rarely seen facts sway someone in a, in a, an argument that has this much vitriol and this much emotion. How do you appeal to someone emotionally on this issue? Or can you? I think you can to some degree, but when there's so much hate that's filled, uh, it, there seems to be a lot of Lack of, there's a significant lack of education and understanding, but there's also a significant lack, a significant level of hate towards this group and a categorization of this group as bad people. 
my group. Right. We're all bad. So uh, you can't really appeal to somebody's Some rough emotion hombres. Unless, unless, and I mean, I, I think that the more we share our stories, that's probably the only way. The more... Um, personalized stories that are out there, maybe the better. I think that the other piece of it is, you know, the undocumented community um, needs to really, all of us need to start speaking and, um, you know, sharing our, our, our journeys. And, you know, we've got the Latinx community that has really been holding up the undocumented community and speaking up. And it's important for all the other groups that are being impacted to also speak up because perhaps um, if, if the president or, you know, um, anyone else um, is able to see that, you know, these individuals, we are very much like the people that they work with, the people they go to school with or you they are. go to school with. They wouldn't know. Most people would not know that I was undocumented because undocumented and illegal immigrant is not exclusive to a particular occupation, a particular race, a particular religion, etc. So I think if people could understand that and understand that that we're just human beings and it's just a, we are in these situations because of circumstances that could happen, could have happened to you or me or anyone else. Perhaps that's where, you know, the humanity comes into it. Have you tried to sit down to talk with someone who just can't stand you and and because you're you you were illegal and explain to them the situation? Is it something I have? I haven't. I haven't yet. Um, I'm. Open would you? To, yes, I, I I would. I would. Um, because at the end of the day, you have to think that you know the human the human condition. We're we're human beings. We're people. At the end of the day, we all have feelings. I would assume, and I would hope, <laughs> right? And yes, I all, think we all do. <laughs> we, you know, we all um, we've all gone through s- situations in our lives that were trying and uh, that felt like they were impossible to overcome. And so her, perhaps we can connect from that pers- from that level, from that level of understanding that sometimes there's circumstances, situations that are just out of our control and we end up being f- victims of those situations. And then we're just trying to survive. And I'm hoping that from that standpoint, I can connect with someone who just absolutely is you know, repulsed by immigrants or illegal aliens. <laughs> That's um, the, the other question is, as we sit here on the eve of election, this is the yeah. midterm elections. A lot of things will be decided. I ask everyone on this show the same question. What's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? No, no. <laughs> I do ask that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be a Monty Python thing. But uh, the other thing I do ask often is, uh, do you vote? I do. I do vote. It's, you know, listen, I became a U.S. citizen in 2012, and that was a really important time and a very important year, right? That Mm -hmm. was, you know, during the Obama campaign. So I was very excited to vote. I it's it's a privilege for me to be able to vote. I'm absolutely going to do that. I'm going to be at the polls at 730 a.m. tomorrow to cast my ballot. It's absolutely important. And I think everyone should do it because we do have, you know, every vote counts and it has an impact on what's going to happen. And there you heard it, folks. I have so many people who ask me, why should I bother to vote? Because my vote doesn't count. It does count. It does. And think of the people in uh, in your life. And there were times when women could not vote. There were times when black people could not That's vote. Right. And you dishonor them. I think I heard recently someone say it's a dishonor to your uh, to your 
grandparents and your, you know, to, if to you their don't, journey, yeah. to their struggle. If Absolutely. you don't do it. So That's I right. urge everyone to vote. And I'm Absolutely. glad to hear most people that I um, interview do say that they vote. I've only had one person who said that they didn't. When you know it, it was a reporter, but we won't go there. <laughs> I think it's important to not just vote, but know who the candidates are, what they stand for, right? So that's really, really important as right. well. Education. People need to educate themselves, do the research, understand who's going to be on the ballot, um, what they're checking off. Do that. Do the homework as well. So that's that's really important. And the name of the book again is? Illegal Among Us. And we can see it on? You will be able to see it on as soon as November 27th. Um, it will be available on Amazon, but for now, you can go directly to my website to pre-order it, www.martinecalau.com. And Martine, we're going to take a short break, and we'll come back for the second half of the show. I am Brian Caraman. This is Just Ask the Question, and that's what we do. We just ask the question. We love to hear the answers. We'll be right back. You're listening to Just Ask the Question. Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Karam, and today we're at the National Press Club. You can hear all the hullabaloo behind us. <laughs> it's actually quite quiet. Here we are in the Margaret Burke uh, Lounge. But uh, we're speaking with Martine, and she's going to tell us a little bit more about her story from being an uh, illegal immigrant without a home uh, to a U.S. American citizen. I find it fascinating that uh, what happened, Martine. So tell me a little bit about how you got there and the randomness of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I think we we need to highlight more in this in the context of immigration and the conversation is the kindness that also exists in America. There's right now it's such a contentious time. There's so much hate and anger um, and animosity, but there are also a lot of good people in America. And I um, experienced that throughout my journey. There was always a helping hand, someone who was willing to not only help, but invest in me. So um, after my my mother and my stepfather died, I was passed around from you know a, a series of family members from one home to another, um, dealing with some level of abuse in some, some households um, and some just neglect. And um, a stranger decided to help me get into boarding school. And um, and it was a series of one stranger passing me along to another stranger. Um, and that's how I got into boarding school. Um, actually, specifically, a judge and his wife decided to uh, pay my way through boarding school. So I, I had a benefactor. Um, and that's how I ended up in boarding school. And then I went to college and got um, a Where'd full scholarship. I went to Hamilton College in upstate New York, a small liberal arts college. And then I went to grad school and I got a full grant. And I went to Syracuse University and I studied public administration, um, specifically focusing on immigration policy. So it was really a series of communities that really took me in and gave me a home and gave me access to education and decided to invest in me and believed in me. And so that is how I got to where I where I got to. And in the midst of all of that. That's very lucky. Very, very lucky. And so part of it is luck. Part of it is work um, and is taking action and being being prepared when the opportunity presents itself. Right. So I that is one of the things that I talked to anybody about when I spoke at a LinkedIn conference um, a few months ago. That's what I talked about. You know, sometimes opportunity presents itself to us and we have to be prepared. We have to say yes and know what actions to take to support ourselves 
ourselves. And it's really about how we present ourselves, right? Um, so I always also focus on not being downtrodden. While I felt very broken on the inside, you know, perception is everything. So I had to be composed and, um, you know, present myself as such so that people would be willing to invest in me. And that's exactly what happened. And that's what got me to where I got to. Depressions, the, 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 the state of mind to do that is uh, extraordinary to be a young woman with both. You're, you're an orphan. You're in Absolutely. a country that you weren't yep. born in and uh, without family. Right. Yep. How? Yes. I mean, to others who got there, that would crush a lot of people. How do you reach those people and say, look, it's not, it's not that you can overcome it because you have. That's a great lesson. But how do you reach people who are suffering like that? You talk about I think you have to really have this desire to you have to. It's really an innate sense of, OK, believing in yourself, really. That's what it comes down to. Um, it's because there were. There were many instances where I wanted to give up. Many times I wanted to give up. But at the end of the day, something within me just, you know, uh, something with deep down inside of me um, wouldn't allow me um, had uh, there was a purpose for me because I was on this earth, because I was alive, because I'm here, then there must be a reason. So I had to keep fighting just to see what that reason was. And secondly, having communities, having a community, having people who supported me is what sustained me also. Because when people invest in you, when somebody believes in you, you don't want to let them down. Um, you want them to, to know that the effort that they put in you, um, the spark that they saw in you, um, it wasn't in vain. You know, they were not wrong. And so you want to prove them right. And so those are the things that sustain me, even when I wanted to give up, right? Um, and not to get into the metaphysics of things, but it was my soul, really. It was my soul that really encouraged me to keep going and said, hey, you've got to keep fighting. And at the end of the day, when I was at my wit's end, um, for me, it was about I need to – I need – people, I need other people to not go through this. So I need to fight it because I need to tell my story so that I can help other people. Even if I don't survive this, if I don't make it through, if I end up in a detention facility indefinitely, um, my story needs to be heard and told so other people don't have to go through it. So it was also at some point it became a selfless act. And sometimes that's what will get you through. Well, that did you ever reach a, a part or a time when it was rock bottom. You felt like it couldn't get any lower than this. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, When I was, so in my, in my book, in my memoir, I talk about, you know, working with having this pro bono attorney and immigration attorney. And by the way, there are a lot of great pro bono immigration attorneys, but there are also a lot of not so great ones that are inundated, exhausted and jaded from this, from the years that they spend, you know, going into making court appearances and, you know, having their cases denied. So I had a, a, you know, an attorney who just was tired of dealing with me and, and referred to me as a head case because I was constantly, I was hysterical about, you know, the fear of being deported. And I had a judge, um, in the Buffalo court system, Buffalo, New York, who told me that I was a liar and I deserved to be deported. So, um, stop. 
What were you a liar about? So this is, I don't want to give away the entire book, but I had to create a case um, against my deceased mother um, to win my own immigration case. I had to, you know, um, talk about the experiences I had. So, uh, you know, going back to earlier in our conversation where I say that, you know, the, the, the pain that comes with being going through this undocumented immigrant journey is that um, oftentimes there's got to be someone to blame, right? We have to blame someone. That's how the system is set up is, you know, we have to, especially when you're an undocumented immigrant um, youth, there is some there's somebody to blame for your situation, your circumstance, and oftentimes it's your mother or father, or it's your parents. Um, the challenge is also when your parents are deceased, and then you have to uh, create a case to, against them in order to even to, though you don't want to, to save yourself, even though you don't want to. So I was in a courtroom, you know, of of all men, all white males, and here I am having to excavate all of these things that I hadn't actually come to grips with about my past, about my journey and um, have them determine and, you know, whether or not I was telling the truth. And so I had this judge who referred to me as a liar, who uh, said I deserved to be deported and knowing full well that I had nowhere to be deported to. So the, the conversation was, well, Let's see if we can find her a third country. And ironically, at that time, a third country could have been Mexico if Mexico was willing to take me in. Um, and if not Mexico, then where else? If nowhere else, then I would just sit in a detention facility indefinitely. So for me, you that know, that was when, rock bottom. That was rock bottom because it, it, I really thought I was just going to die in a detention facility. And I, so for me, it was a matter of. And what were you guilty of that you would be incarcerated for the rest of your life? Of being Ill illegal. <laughs> I was guilty of overstaying my visa. I and for that, of life in prison. My visa. For that, I would be in jail, in prison indefinitely. And this was the era of Guantanamo Bay, right? So yeah. I was even afraid that, hey, am I going to end up in Guantanamo? I mean, it sounds really ridiculous, but. Um, those are real consequences. These are real consequences. And, you know, my story ends out, ends up rather serendipitous, but there are many other people who are going through this right now, who are in those detention facilities, who are in cages, um, who've been forgotten, who are not known about. So these are things that I want to bring to light. I think it's really How long have some of them sat this. there? For years, for years. You can be in there for years. I don't know the exact numbers because, uh, you know, this is something the government that I, I does not allow us to know those Absolutely. exact numbers. Uh, the government and they lie to us it. about those numbers. And also the other thing that, you know, you know, the, the people don't realize not everyone knows. And this is why we have to dispel these myths and misconceptions is, you know, um, if you're going through going into immigration courts as an undocumented immigrant, you're not guaranteed um, legal aid. Right. You're not you don't have to. The government doesn't doesn't owe you, doesn't have to um, guarantee that you have legal representation in those hearings. And um, that's really scary because you think about the number of individuals that are going into those courtrooms and they're not they're not aware of what their situations are, their circumstances. They don't know how to present themselves or fight for themselves. Um, they don't have the legal acumen to talk about their case and argue in front of a judge. And this is the circumstances they're dealing with. And, you know, that's just the reality. 
That's the reality. So I hit rock bottom when I knew that, okay, I was really on my own. I didn't have an attorney who really cared for me. Um, The judge hated me. Um, I was either going to end up in a detention facility or I was going to be sent to some third country. Where would I go? That you didn't know. (laughs) Absolutely. And I literally just had myself. Certainly I had communities that backed me up, my college, my graduate school, but everyone's hands were tied. No one knew what to do. And so what happened? And so what happened? How'd you claw your way out of that? So, and this is where I talk about the randomness and how arbitrary this immigration process is, and it's getting even more arbitrary. So I actually spoke, um, I was one of the original dreamers. I spoke um, on on Capitol Hill back in 2006 um, uh, for the Senate Subcommittee on Immigration. And um, I also went, you know, that's when I went public and I spoke at John McCain's town hall rally on immigration back in 2006. So I just went public because I had no other option. And at that point, I then had hired my own, a new immigration attorney who was excellent, but I could barely afford her um, because I had a work authorization that expired every nine months. So every nine months, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to work to afford her. So I think because of all the publicity that I was getting, um, the my case was sent to the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is essentially the highest immigration court twice. Right. And second time that it was sent to them is when they closed the case and they remanded it back to the judge and forced him to give me um, a permanent resident status. That is a very rare occurrence. It generally wow. does not happen. And the point that I'm making is nowadays, especially in this era, this time, um, you know, we've got so many undocumented immigrants um, who are public with their case. It doesn't make a difference, right? There's so much backlog. Um, I am not sure that it will make a difference. So there isn't a a process. I can't advise anyone who is going through my my situation, well, if you do this, this, and this, then you're guaranteed a successful outcome. There isn't. There isn't a process. Um, And that's what's unfortunate. And so people's hands are tied, and it's just, it's sort of a catch-22 at this point. It sounds horrible. And (laughs) I, I, you know, God forbid, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go in many of us. Uh, our families came here other than Native Americans, who I guess you could say also immigrated here over the land bridge 10,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, there there were no natives until then. But other than that, all of us came to this country looking with the exception of slaves who came here against their will, but tried to find something once freed in this country that speaks to the Constitution and our ideals about we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Strong words which draw us all here. That's why we're all here. And it it, it bothers me as, as, as a human being to, to no end to sit and listen to people say that you don't deserve to be here or you shouldn't be here and always attributing it to, um, to you know, it's the criminals and the terrorists that are coming right. over here. Right. And as someone who's gone through it, I, I mean, I'm telling you how it affects me as, as the son of an immigrant. Mm-hmm. How does it affect you as someone who's still and you profess a love for this country, a deep love for this country? How does it affect you to see the leadership of the free world going in the direction it's going? Um, there was a time, I, I would say, 
you know, a couple months ago where I was feeling a little hopeless, but I, you know, I still believe in the American dream. I feel I still have um, faith in our country and, you know, the constitution that, you know, is the framework of our country. And I believe that going into these elections, if people vote, if they take a stance, if they raise their voice, um, things could change. I'm also reassured by hearing and seeing so many people, you know, get out there and, you know, and speak up and speak out, right? Um, so, you know, that's also part of that, you know, the fabric of our country, the, you know, our democracy, people being able to, 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 to speak and, and, and say what's on their mind. And so I'm reassured by that. Um, I'm hopeful about that. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, we're going through a wave and it's, you know, we were sort of like uh, at a at a decline. And I think in a, it, I'm hopeful that things will change. I'm hopeful because this conversation is being uh, is being had. Um, more people are being are, are, are involved in the conversation. And um, we're talking about all aspects of the undocumented immigration conversation, which hasn't happened in the past. So I'm hopeful about that. And I have to remain hopeful because otherwise, you know, what other alternative is there? Uh, uh, good question. Um, one of the questions I asked in the press briefing room, I'll close with this. I asked if this administration had any empathy for those who have less than than we have. Do you think that this government lacks empathy for the downtrodden? Yes, I do. I do. Um, and I was thinking about that because I was trying to, you know, kind of distinguish between the symp sympathy and empathy. And I do agree that, you know, the administration has a level of sympathy based on specific situations and cases, right? But um, holistically, as you know, uh, generally, um, no, there is a lack of empathy, meaning, all right, you know, with sympathy, it's I feel bad for you. And I, I see I understand. I feel bad for you. That's that's unfortunate. But empathy is is looking for solutions and alternatives. And we're not necessarily, you know, this administration isn't necessarily looking for solutions or looking to just get, end things, yeah. get rid of people. And that's just not realistic. I mean, it's just not realistic. I mean, what I'm trying to say is even if we if the administration decided, well, let's get rid of all of these individuals that are in the United States, it's going to take years and years and years. And how are we going to do that? Like, let's think about that rationally. What's the impact to everyone, to our economy, to our our social state? Um, what's the impact um, emotionally? Undocumented immigrants are people that we interact with every day. We don't even know it, right? So um, there's going to be a huge loss um, to the fabric of America. And so it's just not rational. It, it doesn't make sense. There have to be some, some remedies. There have to be some real solutions. Um, and that's what's, that's what's required for us to be, for the administration to be empathetic, to sit down at a table, to find some real um, viable solutions, which we're not which they're not necessarily looking at right now. No, I don't think they are either, but that's just me. Martina, I really appreciate you being here. Will you come back 
again sometime? I would love to come back. Well, thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. The name of the uh, program is Just Ask the Question. We're here at the National Press Club where they seem to be uh, beating people in the next room. <laughs> but uh, Martine, one more time, tell us the book and where we can find it. Yes, you can find my book. The title is Illegal Among Us on my website at martinecalau.com. And as uh, on November 27th, it will be available on Amazon. Thank you, Martine. And uh, later this week, sit down with us and we'll talk with uh, Mike McCurry, a former press spokesman for a, for a U.S. president. That's not Trump. And we'll talk about the uh, results of the election and some other things. So join us again uh, at the end of the week. I am Brian Karam. Thanks for being here. The name of the show again, Just Ask the Question. Just Ask the Question.